Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. All week on the program, we're bringing you our Closing the Gap series, where we explore racial and socioeconomic disparities in Chicago and around the country. And we talk with problem solvers working to address them. In this installment, we are looking at inequalities in transportation. You may have heard the term driving while black in discussions on systemic racism, but believe it or not, biking while black or even walking while black are also deadly everyday realities for black Americans. Now with us to discuss the policies, planning and practices which disproportionately endanger African-American pedestrians, joggers and cyclists is Professor Jennifer Roberts. She's assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Maryland School of Public Health and director of the Public Health Outcomes and Effects of the Built Environment Laboratory. Jennifer, welcome to Reset. Thank you. It's great to be here, Sasha. You wrote a piece titled, There is No Green Book for Walking. Can you share with us what you meant by that title and tell us a little bit about the article? Sure. It's funny because when I wrote that piece a few years ago, many folks had not heard about the Green Book until the movie by the same name was released, which starred um, Mahershala Ali. Actually, the movie got quite attention because I think it received Best Picture Oscar and also, um, I believe, Best Supporting Actor for Ali. I'm about to embark on a concert tour, the majority of which will be down south, the deep south. First, we're starting in the Midwest, and then we're taking a hard left, Kentucky, North Carolina, Tennessee, and on down through the Delta. Do you foresee any issues in working for a black man? No. No. You've impressed several people with your innate ability to handle trouble. Okay, here's the deal. I got no problem being on a roll with you, but I ain't no butler. You need somebody to get you from point A to point B. You need somebody to make sure there's no problems along the way. And believe me, you in the Deep South, there's going to be problems. It was a great movie, but it really didn't shine like a full kind of focus on the actual Green Book. And so if you were not probably, you know, someone who grew up with grandmothers and grandpas who talked about the Negro Motorist Green Book or simply the Green Book, you probably did not know what it was all about. But I thought, you know, having this tool that was kind of pivotal and essential, particularly for African-American motorists to travel during this really highly segregated and terrorizing periods of the Jim Crow era was something that should really be recognized. And so... I thought of this ideal of like this green book, which was originally published by Victor Hugo Green, um, and I believe in the 30s. It was kind of this idea of like, oh, okay, we can use this as this tool to kind of leapfrog through our journey. So there was no like, oh, we're driving. Oh, that looks like a good restaurant. Looks like they got good food at stop. You know, you really had to plan it. And I wanted to liken that kind of scenario to the ideal of walking or biking um, in the sense that similar to driving, There's not necessarily this quote unquote safe way or safe route for walking and biking for some African-Americans and for some other, you know, people of color. And so I try to think of the idea of how I could give an example. So if you think about Trayvon Martin, you know, Trayvon Martin, 
he was walking and a lot of my research looks at built environment structures. So there were sidewalks, presumably for him to walk, adequate lighting for him to walk just to the simple corner store. Right. But he had this social environment that put him at risk because of the color of his skin. And so this whole ideal of like, there is no green book for walking because there's no quote unquote safe route that many African-Americans of all ages can necessarily just navigate freely without being either racially profiled or there was even a situation that just even just happened yesterday in New Jersey with some teen boys who were biking while black. And so that was kind of the impetus and why I wanted to write this piece and say like there really is no green book for walking and just to highlight and give some recognition to this really seminal piece of work that was a tool for so many African-Americans to have some kind of, you know, liberties to travel as motorists. Tell us a little bit more about your background, Jennifer, and your area of research and and how it ties in to uh, this green book and this line of thinking. Sure. I kind of consider myself a public health, active living and health equity researcher. A lot of my work, as I had mentioned, focuses on the impact of like our built environments. So pretty much our man-made environments. I kind of think of it as like the structures that were designed by humans for humans. So our homes, neighborhoods, transit structures, anything that's specifically for human purposes. And so I look at how that built environment, as well as the social environment, and our natural environment all kind of impacts public health outcomes. Public health outcomes can be defined as anything from our ability to recreate, so our ability to run, our ability to just sit outside and maybe look at the birds, our ability to transport ourselves, so walking to work, you know, maybe from our home, and how these environments not only kind of either support or discourage our ability to do that, but how they specifically impact marginalized communities. And then I take a step back and I look at, okay, well, we have these environments, but I look at also kind of the embedded institutional and structural inequities of these environments and how they subsequently impact health disparities and health inequities. What would you say has been some of the most surprising information you've uncovered? It's funny, Asasha. Not a whole lot surprises me. Um, But I can actually say that when I kind of entered this field of work, I kind of went in it very myopically as very much a very strong active living researcher in the sense that, you know, thinking, okay, you know, as long as you have adequate sidewalks, the sidewalks are wide enough, you know, you have adequate lighting, you have adequate intersection density. So the ability as a pedestrian to be able to cross streets, you know, have these long kind of roads that you would be great. You could be physically active. And even though I knew from just my lived experience as a black woman about the perils of our social environments, I think for me, what I could say that surprised me is I kind of was slapped in the face a few years ago when I did a study on adolescents of color and I was asking about their active transportation behaviors and they just kind of went in in it and said well my mom tells me I can't go down the street and I'm like well why can't you go down that street well because they don't like black people and you sometimes as a researcher just have that researcher hat and then I had to be like wait a minute of course I know this you know I was that same teenage kid I, I was that same adolescent kid and so sometimes I think what quote unquote surprises me is the fact that so much of my work is getting more and more informed by my lived experiences, if that makes any sense. You know what I mean? Sometimes I go in and I'm looking at the research question and this is what I think I'm going to find. Then I see something else. And then I have to be like, of course, you know, this is the case. You've been living this for for decades. Yeah, no, I know know what you mean. Well, nothing surprises you, Jennifer, but what other 
history or data do you think might surprise some of our more privileged listeners? Um, probably, I would say, how so much of what we see today didn't just happen. You know, it just didn't happen by happenstance. I think sometimes, you know, we'll have people and they'll say, I can't believe this has happened in the United States. Or I can't believe, you know, this occurred in this town. And I'm like, we shouldn't be surprised because so much of our history in this country continues to perpetuate what we see today. Now, I will understand that a lot of people don't understand our, our history because a lot of us, when we were kids in school, we got a censored kind of version of our American history. So I can understand how some people could be sort of surprised because maybe they just don't know our history. But, you know, when you look at situations like where we live, where particularly African-Americans live, it's not a random event. You know, everything from urban development, everything from redlining. And so those residential settlement patterns really kind of inform where there's going to be parks because the parks that were in the green areas or the blue areas or the areas that were the nice areas to basically invest in were the areas that had the nice parks. And so therefore you'll have areas that have nice parks versus now you have some areas where a lot of African-Americans live and they're considered like play deserts or recreational deserts because the parks are not of good quality. There's either high crime. And so you see definitely how these things just don't happen in random. You know what I mean? This is Reset, and this week we continue our Closing the Gap series with a look at disparities in transportation. We are talking now about inequities in pedestrian life with Jennifer Roberts. She's an assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Maryland School of Public Health. Jennifer, I want to take a deeper dive into the intentionality behind the policies and urban planning that got us to this point. So if you can give us a couple more specific examples there and tell us whether we have examples of best practices in in other cities here or, or, you know, abroad. Sure, sure. You know, I kind of like to kind of give us the example of how our country developed. And even when we think about suburbanization in this country, which was really, really accelerated in the 50s and the 60s. And if we kind of think back, you know, just kind of looking at it's like the story where, you know, Go back to maybe like World War II, where, you know, the U.S. economy, it was stimulated and we had this money in our household bank accounts. The soldiers came back from the war. They got married to their sweethearts. Everyone was having families. You know, you had this big boom of babies coming out. And then these soldiers got their GI bills. And I say some soldiers. When I say some soldiers, I'm talking about the white soldiers primarily. And they could get houses with this. They could get education. And so these homes were in these suburbs were able to be pretty much boomed. And then you think about it, okay, now I got this great house in the suburbs. You know, I have my family out there. I have a little extra money in the bank. But now I got to get back and forth to work, which is like in the city center. And so you had this kind of automania because now people are like, okay, I can buy a car, but how am I going to get back and forth to work? So we needed these highways. And by the 1950s, highways were used as this interstate highway project, and it was developed with suburbanization in mind. But also there was the peril of that because they were also used as a remedy to cure the quote-unquote ills of the city. So basically, let's kind of just go over all of the African-American communities, you know, basically, and put these highways in there. And so these city planners kind of thought about crowded African-American areas, which were left in the, you know, in the city center as these unhealthy areas that just kind of need to be removed, cleared, developed, which they quote called 
urban renewal as, or as the great literary James Baldwin said, Negro removal, you know? And so you see this connection between the suburbs, the need for highways so that people from the suburbs can get to the city, but then how the development of these highways obliterated many African-American communities. And so those policies and those urban plannings, they all speak to like what we see today in terms of even current settlement patterns of where people live and where people continue to live. And so the whole thing just, it fascinates me because, Mm -hmm. you know, you can't just look at it, you know, in a vacuum, but you just have to see how all of this has evolved over time and to get to the point where we see today. Tell us a bit more about the deadly consequences of these policies and trends, like I mentioned earlier. You know, what has this meant regarding pedestrian and and biking industries and biking injuries and deaths for black and brown people? Right. Well, well, you know, well, that phrase, you know, as we started off at the beginning of the program, walking while black, biking while black, running while black, it's become a phrase that it really can be deadly in the sense that we look at last summer with Ahmaud Aubrey. He was just running in his own neighborhood, you know, just a recreational running, and he was targeted and subsequently killed. We see the constant, constant profiling racial profiling of African-Americans on bikes. You know, as I mentioned early in the program, there was just literally a situation in New Jersey where some teenagers, they were just on their way home on their bikes. And it's unfortunate because what happens is any other teenager, it could just look like a random, innocent event of teens just going home, having a good time. Right. But when it's black teens, it becomes nefarious. They must and be up to something. Exactly. They either stole the bike. They're either up to something. And they had like over six police cars that stopped these kids. One of the bikes was confiscated. Another teenager was arrested. And I think this area in New Jersey, you needed a quote unquote license tag to ride through this particular town. And the boys lived in another town. So they were just like going through the town to just get back home. But they didn't get a pass like the way they would have, you know, if they didn't have that black skin. And so these situations can escalate to death. You know, we see the Trayvon Martins, we see the Ahmads, we can see where it has escalated to death. Yeah. And so something as simple as riding your bike, walking, we've even seen situations, there was a study in Oregon on scooters as well. Some of the black folks in Portland, Oregon was saying that they have been racially profiled being on scooters. So it can continue to extend. And then the other thing about the phrases is there's another nuance to it. There has actually been research that has shown that in addition to the racial profiling, African-American pedestrians as well as Hispanic pedestrians are more likely to be the victims of pedestrian hit and runs and fatalities. And there was even data that came out of CDC that showed that African-Americans were twice as likely than white pedestrians to be killed from a pedestrian hit and run. Um, And then Hispanics were like one and a half more likely than white pedestrians. And that data came out of CDC. But there's also been researchers who've also kind of looked at this to see the likelihood of people yielding, you know, if there's an African-American standing in a crosswalk. And they've also shown that they're less likely to yield when someone looks like that in the crosswalk. Yeah, here at uh, WBEZ, we've also reported on the big data that reveals that black and brown bikers are ticketed at a a heavily disproportionate rate than white bikers. Yes, I saw that in Chicago. And actually, I have a clip of that that I show in my lecture. So I definitely have seen that in Chicago. Speaking of Chicago, when you look at a city like ours, what comes to your mind? 
Well, <laughs> since you asked, it's interesting. So actually, my husband and I lived there for close to four years. We lived in the outskirts in the western suburbs of Elmhurst. And I remember thinking when I used to use the transit system, I used to think it was like one big spider, <laughs> meaning if, okay, if you just walk with me visually. It was like all these lines that came from the western suburbs that went downtown and convened, I believe it was Ogilvy, the, the, I can't remember the name of the station. But I always thought, I'm so glad that you have this transit system. But I remember thinking, yeah, I wish these lines were connected. So mm -hmm. I'm always very hypercritical of transit systems. But at the same time, I'm thankful because many cities in, in the United States don't have it. Right. This is a pretty good it. one. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, it is, is a pretty, pretty good one. It, it is pretty good. Um, but the other thing that I do think about, and, and I will say that I do miss my time in Chicago, being able to take those trains, the biking while black is what really does come to mind. You know, it was that article that came out in, in the Tribune a few years back where the African-American cyclists were more likely to get citations written when they were riding in African-American areas as opposed to white, some of the white areas or even the, some of the Latinx areas. And just that constant, constant targeting, targeting of whether you know, whether it's going to give you some kind of penalty for a ticket. And some of these tickets were because you were riding on the sidewalk. And primarily because some areas just don't have bike lanes. So it was safer to ride on the sidewalk. And it's just this constant lack of just certain liberties that other people are afforded, you know, where they're like, okay, I get it while you're on the sidewalk. But no, I'm going to give you a ticket because I feel like you are just doing this and I'm going to criminalize you for every single thing possible. And so that's like the chronic, chronic kind of stress of it. And even though you may not be killed and have some of the extreme events like a Trayvon or Mod, that's that constant, constant stress of being targeted by police or whoever is assuming that kind of authority position. And so I do think about that in Chicago, but Chicago's not unique. And I'm not picking on Chicago. I love Chicago. There's been other areas where they have to deal with the biking while black, you know, the running while black, the walking while black, the scooters while black. You know, I can yeah. just keep going on and on. So I'll ask you again, Jennifer, you know, who's doing it right? What are, what are some best practices that you can share from elsewhere to bring equity and, and bring justice? You know, a lot of cities are still actually starting to now kind of look at this through another lens. I don't want to say it's new, but it is kind of a new thing that people are recognizing. One area that comes to mind that's kind of really been on the forefront and quite progressive with dealing specifically with transportation and equity is Victoria in British Columbia. And actually, just last month, they actually had, it's called their Victoria Transport Policy Institute. They actually convened to talk about these very issues of transportation equity. And equity based on like cost, you know, so for example, the cost of being able to use public transportation, the equity in terms of there's gaps in transportation infrastructure profiling. And so, you know, they just met last month, but the fact that they even had a meeting to convene to recognize that there's these issues that have to deal with evaluating inequity impacts and to figure out how we can incorporate the equity analysis into transportation decisions before the transportation is even done. So before we even break ground. And I think that's one key thing that is a lesson that Victoria and some other cities have learned. And then even coming, stepping back to the U.S., we're even starting to recognize inequity related to transit deserts. 
So that's kind of a new coin term that's just been yeah. generated off of the whole idea of food deserts. Well, so you, you gave many... me a new term today when you said play deserts. I had never yeah, heard yes. that one. <laughs> that yes, was brand wish... new for me. <laughs> I wish I could say that I invented it. But yes, the play desert, wow. the recreation desert, then there's the transit desert. So the transit desert, that's actually been shown. So that's just areas throughout the U.S. And I can say throughout the world, but I'll just focus on the U.S., where there's a gap between the need for public transportation um, the need for kind of any kind of transit infrastructure with what is offered and what's supplied. And you may think, okay, well, what, what do you mean? What do you mean? And I'm meaning like, okay, so if you think about it, who cannot have a car or who doesn't own a car or even maybe have the funds to maintain a car? So mm-hmm. you may say you're teenagers who don't have a license yet. You may say, you know, our aging population who are getting a little bit insecure about driving, you know, you may say the population that are just like, I don't want a car <laughs> or I can't afford a car to maintain. There's many different populations. And so when there's a gap, mm-hmm. people could be waiting at the bus stop <laughs> for hours if there is a bus stop. So there's some cities who have tried to figure out how to fill that gap. And they've been able to fill it with some pretty innovative ideals. One ideal has been, and I think this was in the Texas area. I can't remember what city, but they've been using like Lyft and Uber to kind of fill those gaps and to kind of like subsidize the expense of that. So if you're like at an area where you're like, oh, the next bus is not for like an hour and a half, someone could say, okay, for this leg of your journey, you can get like an Uber or a Lyft. So they're kind of filling that gap a little bit. But I think the key is just even just recognizing that we do have these issues of yeah. transit deserts. You know? Yeah, and, and as part of this series, we are going to speak with Junfeng Zhao. He's actually the man who coined the term transit deserts. We'll okay. have a, we'll dig deeper in that discussion. Awesome. Well, we'll awesome. have to leave it there. That is Jennifer Roberts. She's assistant professor of kinesiology at the University of Maryland School of Public Health and director of the Public Health Outcomes and Effects of the Built Environment Laboratory. Jennifer, thanks so much. Thank you again, Sasha. It's really been a pleasure. And that's today's Reset. Keep your ears on the pod this week as we talk to more people who are closing the gap on transportation inequality. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. Enjoy the nice weather. We'll meet again tomorrow. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.